UFR BostonFreeRadio.com My name is Gabriel Samuel Hamlin, and on today's episode of the Guaucast, we go over the recent Russian indictments, the 15 hackers from the GRU trying to influence the United States 2016 presidential election. During the show, I make uh, two flub-ups, uh, even more naive and really plucky than I've ever intended, where I try to, uh, instead of just saying HTTPS or HTTP, I uh, went ahead and just decided to just pronounce the entire thing, but I made a mistake. It's actually a hypertext transfer protocol instead of hypertext protocol which is what uh, if you listen to the show if you can cringe through it that's a mess up I make another mistake I made was uh, calling uh, the GRU uh, the GNU for uh, those of you who don't know uh, you know they're the uh, officers that were indicted that are involved with the uh, Russian government and in part we discuss the uh, computer fraud and abuse act and the violations in their statutes that led to these indictments and the implications in terms of its criminalization of recent activists such as Aaron Swartz. Tune in, you wouldn't want to miss it. Enjoy. Free Radio with me, your host, Guillermo Samuel Hamlin. You are listening to the Guaucast on July 14th, 2018. He is the host of the Greg House Show. He's a former hacker, internet freedom activist, and a consultant for the uh, Netflix series House of Cards, which is going to be having its final season very soon. How are you doing, Greg? Doing pretty good. Glad to be here. You know, we've, we've been uh, very close to each other doing similar things for a yeah, long time. Really we've never weird. actually gotten together on anything. Yeah. So, I always yeah. feel like we're like fellow passengers, but you're, you've had a far more interesting take. Mine was a lot more sanitized. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't join me in prison? No, oh. I, did, I, I did not. Uh, oh. You know, the thing about being an immigrant is that we're so afraid of doing anything <laughs> right. that we don't want to. I'm the exact opposite of that. My family was here before this country, so. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? And this country stole my family's land. Oh, so. man, that's nuts. I might be a uh, German descent, but uh, we were in Texas before it joined. That's nuts. All right, so let's just get right into it. So we had. 12 Russian hackers indicted by the by Robert Mueller. And what's most amazing about just the breadth of the case is how much the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is prevalent throughout many of these indictments. When I first came to know the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, I was acquainted with it being weaponized against Aaron Schwartz. And since then, I've had like such an unfavorable relationship with that piece of legislation, given how dated it is. Given your familiarity, what do you think of these indictments using this act to really approach what seems to be a coordinated effort to influence an election through a whole host of covert means? You know, the CFAA is a very problematic piece of legislation. It was written in uh, 86, and it was actually, well, it was passed in 86. It was written in, in, in the years before that. Uh, it was passed 
after a bunch of people watched the movie War Games. With Matthew Broderick, right? With Matthew Broderick. And uh, decided that they were really scared that all of that could actually happen. And they needed laws to protect against it. So they wrote this set of laws uh, called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, normally shortened as CFAA. And it was so long ago, again, 1986, uh, and written out of fear that they wrote it really broadly. So uh, it could be interpreted almost any way you wanted. I think you could use the CFAA to pull someone over for running a red light at this point. I mean, it's that broadly written that the text is almost useless. But it was also written when uh, the internet uh, wasn't open to the public, didn't really exist in its current form. It was a little bit of a research tool, a little bit of a military tool, but it definitely wasn't what it is today. So it was written when people were using BBSs and using their phones to dial in to things, you know, via modem, and it, it really doesn't have an understanding of the internet built into it. So the law, and it hasn't been updated, they haven't amended it, they haven't done anything to solve this problem. So in some regards, I think it's great that they have this broad tool to go after the Russians with, and in others, I've watched it used against friends of mine. Aaron was a friend of mine. Um, other people, friends of mine, uh, Jeremy Hammett is sitting in federal prison right now because of the CFAA. Okay. And what's interesting about his case is um, if for the same crime, uh, just in a different country, so this person was charged in that country for what he did, here we have Jeremy Hammond. He got 10 years there in Norway, the hacker in Norway who did the same thing got 30 days community service because that's actually what the crime was really worth. Um, so it's interesting because here in America they're really scared of computer crimes and they come down really hard on them. They don't they don't actually judge it properly. All of the math they use to figure out your uh, sentences, your guidelines, your fines, all of it is just it's horrible. But then at the same time, we really badly need to go after these Russians for what they've done. So it does give them a pretty interesting toolkit to do so because they can pretty much write whatever they want. The law says whatever I say it says because the language is that broad. Yeah, and the most interesting thing is the depth of it. I, and for those of you who really want to go into a deep dive, Lawfare blog had a phenomenal piece on the Russian indictment and how it unpacks the whole thing. One of the shining pieces of this is how they were able to trick John Podesta into accepting a spear phishing email and not only that but to trick him into thinking that somebody else was using his password there, there's so much that I really want to ask but first thing first for the people at home what is what is spear phishing what are these words what is BBS how sure. can we break down for the layman the security implications that went on and how it could really affect any one of us really sure so spear phishing like there's two different types of phishing there's just phishing and then there's spear phishing so phishing is I've just sent out a bunch of emails that you know I've included the PayPal logo in and it says your login details have changed click here to verify them and you click on it and the website you go to looks like PayPal mm -hmm. and you type in your details well now I've saved those details because I'm gonna go log in and empty your PayPal real quickly and you didn't look at the URL in your address bar where it actually said you know PayPal dot something dot something dot UK you know it definitely wasn't PayPal's website and uh, that's just standard phishing. Those are just wide nets cast all over the place. A spear phishing campaign is, I let's say I broke into your email yeah. and then sent an email like I was you 
to your wife trying to make her think something about you. That would be spear phishing. I, mm. I am going from a contact of yours or something that looks really closely like a contact of yours. So you're going to believe it more such as I might, you know, I use for my uh, podcast, I use, you know, a, a podcasting service. Maybe someone breaks into their email server and sends me an email from their server. Mm. I might take an invoice PDF file from them and open it. Well, it could be a weaponized PDF. That PDF could have a virus in it and mm -hmm. it could have not come from them. That would be a spear phishing campaign where they really are targeting just me. And a phishing campaign is, well, whoever opens the thing. All right. So what could be, what are some preventative measures, if there are any, besides being patient and really glancing at whatever it is that you're clicking? Uh, you know, verify the email addresses. A lot of times, you know, like you could have sent uh, something from John Podesta, but just bit, you know, built a Gmail that said John Podesta 54 at gmail.com when his was 53. And, you know, if, if it's a friend of yours and, you know, it's something that maybe it's an attachment or maybe it's a link to click on that isn't a normal thing they would have sent you, really look at the email address. Make sure that's the one you always get email from them on. Um, that's piece one. Piece two is using a service that actually, you know, does properly spam and virus protection like gmail is good for that uh proton mail uh, if you want some real security also has really good protection in it um you know if you're using a mac you know download the only decent antivirus for a mac uh, sophos uh if you're on windows honestly the built-in um you know malware uh detector is, is fine uh, you don't need mcafee or norton or any of those they just slow your machine down and add no value mm. but uh you know just just do, do the work to actually stay a little more diligent than normal, especially if you think you're a target. If, if you've got money, if you've got power, if you've got anything that you think someone might want to use or manipulate, or you're just friends with people who have money or power, then they're going to be coming for you. I hope everyone at home feels safe. So <laughs> what are the benefits of being online anonymously to being a public figure online. I make sure that my uh, hypertext protocol has an additional security socket layer to yep. make sure that any website I go on to, it could be like- You're always SSL. Exactly, there's yep. always something- uh, And there are plugins on. for your web browsers exactly. to do that, that force uh, SSL. So if you go to a website, it'll automatically redirect you to the secure one. And that that's a good step. Luckily, uh, we have Let's Encrypt, which is a, a service out there giving away free SSL finally. Uh, oh, finally. And <laughs> so if you run a website or anything and don't really want to spend the money on SSL, certificates it's free now and if anyone's trying to sell them to you uh don't pay just go yeah. to let's encrypt they're free now awesome um so i would say that's uh one piece but you know the, the bigger question about anonymity is always weird to me like uh at the family separation um protests here in Boston last weekend, there was a group of counter protesters, sort of. I, they, they show up uh, to a lot of the things that uh, the left would consider uh, Nazi protests, white supremacist protests. But they were honestly there, they say, in support of this protest against family separation. Uh, who knows what to believe on these people as they're mostly trolls, but they had their faces covered. Yeah. Now, as someone who um, helped to get Get really anonymous off the ground. Yeah, um, I actually chose the Guy Fox mask. That was my decision that we You're used kidding. that mask. No, I, I still have so, the one so, that I bought that day when I made that choice. So, so this is something I've always wanted to ask. Me personally. Yeah. Um, back when I was uh, studying at Harvard University Extension School, when I was deep into my own education into what could be considered cyber anarchism, why the Guy Fox mask when he was actually uh, like kind of yes. a religious authoritarian? He was kind of a 
He was horrible. Yeah, I was, I'm not a fan. Not so, at all. Yeah, so so why? None of us are either. So, so, so imagine that maybe, you know, maybe be for Vendetta. Nope. Uh, there is a much less sexy, much less uh, romantic uh, reason for that mask. And what is it? Uh, so we did not know what we were doing when we sort of got anonymous off the ground as it was all somewhat accidental. And we called for a protest globally in uh, 43 countries and 142 cities uh, two weeks later. And not one of us had ever even organized, say, a five-person protest, let alone anything else. We had no clue what we were doing. And we had said it so soon that we soon realized uh, the idiocy of our, of our idea. Uh, but so what? We had made it. It was public. There were millions of people who had viewed uh, the YouTube there, the uh, Message to Scientology YouTube and the uh, follow-up videos. That's, that's my YouTube channel, you know? And so I'm sitting there with all these people watching the YouTube. And uh, we realized quickly that uh, as anonymous, we would need to cover our faces at these events. Mm -hmm. What were we going to use? And we came up with a short list of, you know, well, what if we used a Batman mask or, uh, or that guy Fox mask from that movie, uh, V for Vendetta. That's shown up on 4chan a couple times. Or maybe everyone would just wear scarves, you know. We were just throwing out ideas. And we came up with this list of like five or six of them. Even like masquerade ones. Those ones where you hold it up to your face. But we yeah. realized at a protest, your arm's going to fall off. You don't want to hold that thing. Yeah. Um, so we got into an argument that lasted about five hours. Uh, that little eight of us that kind of founded all that. And... We ended on this really, uh, I think, pragmatic point. Uh, we have a couple weeks. For some of the cities that are going to be protesting, that isn't enough time for shipping. So this mask better exist all over the world, better be in costume shops, comic book shops, specialty shops, already. There's no time for shipping, and it better be cheap. Mm -hmm. So we stayed up all night that night and all day the next day uh, calling comic book shops and costume shops all the way from Sydney, Australia, all the way to Los Angeles. So literally a 24-hour run of phone calls, of emails, of everything. And we found that every major city in the world had in large quantities the guy fox mask for cheap and it was the only one that no one was buying these places were thinking about sending it back to the warehouses because no one was buying them and so they were even lowering the prices hmm. it was literally the only choice we could actually make so the next day i went out to newberry comics here in boston and grabbed one came back home and got on Skype with all the uh, all the other little group there and was like, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this thing. And we started playing with it, realized quickly it hurt to wear. You needed to make a little cut here, put a little piece of foam there, and then it felt good on your face. And so we all kind of, you know, modified our masks. But I still have that that original uh, one from that day when we chose it. And then we just told everyone, here you go, everyone wear this. So we have a unified, you know, look. And so we have this ominous feel of being a unified look worldwide out of nowhere. Hmm. Very pragmatic, very practical, yeah, and it, not and, romantic. And it's a very good way of just appropriating something that once was now being just a uniform slate for anonymity. I think one of the funnier acts uh, in all of this is that, you know, the uh, IP uh, for that, the trademark, the copyright, everything for that artwork and that mask itself all belongs to Warner Brothers from V for Vendetta. Anonymous itself has abused that copyright and that trademark all over the world in mm. great quantity. Like, uh, Warner Brothers on any other property they own would have sued like a million people already over this. Mm -hmm. And they haven't said a word because they weren't selling those masks or that image until we chose it and started doing this. So I think it's been an interesting kind of fair deal where we got their IP and they didn't say a word and it just worked. 
I like the idea. Strange, right? It, it, I love the idea of appropriating a sunk cost from Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, I, I just love the idea of that. <laughs> for, right. the, for the purpose of cyber activism. Let, let's go into House of Cards, iRobot, your Mr. Consul- Robot. Uh, Mr. Robot, sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> with your consulting work with these shows. How were you approached to flesh out these characters? And Oh, it's hilarious, actually. Um, so, House of Cards Season 1 had come out, mm-hmm. uh, and it was that week on a Saturday. Uh, me and my wife were actually uh, streaming the whole thing. We were in love with it. We were up to Episode 7, like midday, and we were just going to finish the season. Nice. The first week uh, of Season 1, we're streaming the actual show when my phone rings, and I pick it up. And the guy on the other end says he's Bo Willimon, the creator of House of Cards, the show I'm watching currently on Netflix. So I laughed and said, I don't know which one of you this is, but that's pretty good. That's funny. And I hung up on him because uh, me and my hacker friends, you know, we screw with each other a lot. So I was guessing one of them got into my Netflix and saw it and then was trolling me, right? And then I got uh, a text swearing that it was him, and then an email from the production company's actual domain, and I was like, you know what, I still would have done, I would have gone this far if I was really trying to troll, so no. But then I got tweets from their accounts, and then the phone rang again, I was like, that could actually be him. Okay, so I answered it, and it turned out to really be him. And we talked a little about uh, part of my life story and some of the stuff that had happened to me. And uh, a fair amount of what happens to Gavin in the show is stuff that actually happened to me. And so we, uh, I was asked, you know, if I could help him get that character right and get, you know, his mannerisms right, get the, the hacking at least as close to real as you could in that kind of a dramatized show. And uh, what we could do to make even just down to his room, the computer setup look right, you know, and that's literally... Literally, we took a picture of my computer setup in my bedroom and used that to make his. Um, the artwork on the wall in his bedroom is hanging on the wall in my room. It was literally, they just went to the same place and bought the same picture. Wow. Uh, so I got to go down there, be on set, hang out, uh, and I learned all this stuff about that, that industry and how it works. And what was really lucky was uh, when Mr. Robot started getting built, um, they ended up hiring Michelle Gill, who played the president, in the first uh, couple seasons of House of Cards, uh, to be the boss of the company that uh, that the main character uh, worked at, and then they hired uh, the FBI agent uh, Jeremy Holmes uh, from House of Cards to be one of the kind of enforcer guys on Mr. And so, and there was nice. so much crossover that there That's ended up being like three people on the Mr. Robot set that were from the House of Cards set. And uh, when it came time for them to really start thinking about, okay, now let's make sure we get this right when they were writing it, they all said, hey, call this guy. And, uh, you know, so they called me, they called another guy, Mark, another guy, Mike, um, and uh, everyone just kind of got to play around. I had the hardest time of it because NBC has some rules uh, where they're not allowed to directly hire felons. Okay. Yeah. Not directly. Strange enough, uh, Christian Slater, they overlooked that for. Yeah, I was going to say. Being a felon. Yeah. Uh, but for me, they did not overlook that. Maybe so, some statute of limitations, I don't know. Yeah, so I ended up uh, working for a consulting firm that was really just a sole proprietorship that they and hired they the risk. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, so like, it was, it was kind of crazy how we had to figure out me getting in the door because of my felony. But uh, I did raise the, the point that, you know, you, you've already hired a felon on this set. Like, what? why me? What, what, why you? Why you picking on me well let's explore that um <laughs> so so you used to say that you were the fun 
What, what, what was the nickname that you gave yourself? The Fun Computer 90s? I was definitely a criminal, man. I, <laughs> I did I did nearly everything they said I did. Um, and this, nearly. Was when you were really, this was when you were a lot younger. Uh, I started, uh, when, I mean, I started really in the hacking stuff and uh, in the black market sales of uh, stolen computer goods uh, when I was 14. Um, 14 for everyone at home. <laughs> Yeah, I got my first computer right before I turned 14, and it just, it turned out to be natural to me. It was easy. Nothing else is easy, man. I, my car makes a noise, I just laugh. I got no idea what's going on under the hood. I'm sure it has something to do with fire. That's, that's about as good as I got there. Um, I get a flat, I laugh too. I, I don't know how to do anything. Do not give me a hammer. Everyone within like a 10 mile radius dies. Like, just don't, like, I can't do anything else, but give me a computer. And it's just like, I don't have to try. It's just so simple. It's just, it's how I'm built, it seems. So I was like three weeks into having my first computer and I was already programming. I was already writing my first application and it was just, it was that easy. And so, of course, growing up the son of a bank robber, um, I also did not have uh, much in the way of a care for the law or the legality of things. Mm. Uh, I was never really taught that that mattered. Uh, I was more taught that it specifically did not. Um, And so, of course, I went the way I went, which was into hacking, into stealing from big companies, into social engineering product out of huge companies turning into selling it on the black markets uh it was it was it was a lot of a lot of stuff i did in the 90s so what was it like being acquainted with like fbi agents who would have to check in on you and really oversee the presumption that you at any point could be a habitual offender you know, so they busted me in uh, late 99, and it took them seven years to finally prosecute me. And that's because me and my lawyers fought pretty damn hard about a lot of what they were saying about me. And we fought a lot on the uh, exact uh, phrasing of the sentencing guidelines. They were just outright wrong. We ended up uh, with the fight getting so big that... Uh, we actually worked with Congress and they rewrote the sentencing guidelines for specifically what I was going to go down for. Really? You, you worked with Congress or the lawyers worked with The Congress? lawyers did, but I, I actually got to sit in on meetings uh, and, and, and like? give them... Uh, it was weird because, you know, their argument was back then that, you know, if uh, 1,000 copies of Adobe Photoshop 3 was downloaded and it was $500, then you owed 500 times 1,000 because... Well, that's how much money you cost them. The guidelines were completely rewritten to be uh, slightly more practical. You know, of those thousand downloads, five, five at most would have ever paid that bill. And it could have afforded that bill, um, let alone, you know, actually even used the software. You're lucky if 100 people even installed the thing that downloaded it. So, like, we got them to really come along for the ride because I said, look, as soon as you get these numbers right to a believable set of figures, I'm pleading guilty. Literally, the second you give me the crime that I did and the punishment I feel I deserve, you've got me. And they really badly wanted that little gold star, that little check mark next to my name saying got him. That's all they cared about. Whether it was a day or 96 years, which was the original set of years that I was facing, um, it, it was just it was just literally, could we get him? And uh, so I got uh, the first, uh, uh, there's a federal uh, sentencing rule uh, that you can uh, get uh, if a judge really feels like you're owed uh, due to the style of your prosecution. Uh, it's called a Booker variance. A Booker variance. Hmm. And uh, I got the first one in the, the first one? history of the country. So a Booker variance, 
um, explain like on five, what is a Booker variant and why were you the first one? Was it, it, it was clearly it, it, it passed while I was being tried. Oh, okay. So yeah. So that I was the first one simply because I was the first one to actually get to sentencing after the variance actually happened in that court. And so and, and what type of relief did, did this variance provide? It basically allows the judge to decide whatever the F he wants and ignore the guidelines. Okay, so it allows for some sort of judicial discretion rather yeah. than having to be so stringent and draconian. Yeah, instead of having to say guidelines. the okay. min is five years, the judge now says you get a Booker variance, which means I get to give you three months. Mm. And uh, so you really want one if you can get one. Yeah, seriously. And I ended up getting mine for all the work I did on actually helping them redo the sentencing guidelines, um, specifically for the software piracy. Um, so that was that was a really interesting time. The problem was, though, it took seven years. And during that seven years, they didn't have to keep working with me. At any moment, they could have literally said, ah, we're done here, and picked me up the next day and thrown me in jail and then had my trial be a month later. So I spent seven years not knowing if I was going to get arrested tomorrow. And them having uh, no legal way or reason to tell me if it was happening. Um, so I just woke up every morning like, oh, they didn't show up this morning. Good. For seven years. It sucked. Jeez. I couldn't hold down a long-term job with anyone that I could promise that I would be there tomorrow. I couldn't promise a woman, you know, be my girlfriend, you know, because, you know, maybe tomorrow I disappear, you know, and I didn't want to do that to anyone. And it just, it was, a, it was, it was hard. How did you deal with that loneliness? I could imagine that, because my understanding when I was observing Aaron Schwartz, Barrett Brown, a great many number of these people, even someone Two very that we, good of mine. yeah, and someone else. I'm going to drop a third one, Lauren Pespiza, you uh, know, another very yes. good friend of mine. So we have all these people. I who, was literally at her house last night. <laughs> I believe that. Yeah. So, 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 how do you deal with knowing people as well as yourself under the guise of this gray cloud? of prosecution how does one like how do you feel isolated is it a mental health nightmare how do you really it go is. about rehabilitating that it really is uh there there are a lot of people in our community uh i'll call it you know the activist community but maybe the activist community who has been willing to go a little past that line mm -hmm. uh that have learned that you need support during that time period and yeah. so there are groups of activists who actually offer support beforehand support during and even jail support while you're there yeah. um and uh, you just have to get really connected with those people like for the anons there's free anons and they work on making sure you know you get letters you get phone calls you get you know your commissary topped off so you can you know survive in prison all the way up to during trial and everything else they make sure people show up and support you um you know for jeremy hammond's uh trial you know there were like 30 of us there uh and you know i was sitting there with his uh, mom rose um holding her hand during the sentencing as he's getting sentenced and then going out to dinner with them after we did jail support later that night uh just to kind of you know even help the family because even them knowing that their family is getting treated and getting taken care of is is a big relief off of them you know that they know that mom's not sitting back at the hotel crying into her hands you know like you know after after trial and sentencing and everything so there's a lot of support these people need and if you know anyone in that situation no matter how strong they're acting yeah. it's always an act 
uh, ask them if they need anything, offer your assistance, offer your friendship. Uh, it's really important. You know, it doesn't seem like I want to ever end this conversation, but ultimately <laughs> we're at the we're ultimately at the end of our show. Absolutely. Greg, um, so I'd like to thank our uh, our guest Greg House. Please check out the Greg House show and be go beyond that. He, they have a Patreon. Please support him on Patreon. Please support the thank show you, on thanks. Patreon. Go ahead and support the Guaucas on Patreon as well. Oh, thank you so much. I will be having a great time editing this together and ultimately thanks, sending this out to my listeners. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great day and I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Same. I'll come back whenever you want, man. Awesome. Thank you. This episode was recorded at Boston Free Radio at the Somerville Media Center at Union Square. If you'd like to hear the hip-hop music that we're playing on our program, tune in on Boston Free Radio, Saturdays from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. You can listen to the music live on Boston Free Radio. If you are unable to do so, don't fret. We have our Spotify playlist shown early on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash GS Hamlin for your Guaucast needs. Come on in and check out our Patreon.